hello everyone. My name is Luan. Um, I'm a first year engineering student and I will be doing the Bible reading today. So our, verse for, or our passage for today is Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Earlier the next morning, Abram got up and loaded his donkey. He took of him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abram looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I, while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them went on together. And Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they they reached the place God had told them about, Abram built an altar there and arranged the, the wood on it. He pounded his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abram, Abram. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abram looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abram called that place, The Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. Then Abram returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abram stayed in Beersheba. Some time later, Abram was told, Milcah is also a mother. She has borne sons to your brother Naor, who is the firstborn, Buzz, his brother. Camuel, the father of Aram, Kezed, Hazo, Peldash, Jitlath, and Bethel. Bethel became the father of Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight sons to Abram's brother, Naor. His, his concubine, whose name was Riemah, also had sons, Teba, Gaim, Taj, and Makah. Thanks, Luan. You did well with those names. I should have told you not to bother with that last paragraph. We're not going to look at it. 
Uh, you'll find an outline uh, inside the newsletter opposite where the passage is printed. For those who don't know me, my name's Tim. It's great to be with you as we look at this uh, part of the Bible from Genesis 22, early on in the Bible. Begins, God tested Abraham. Uh, I guess that word test probably sends fear and apprehension into the heart of any student. Mid-semester exams, this week, next week. Recall those WACE exams and all those uni exams you've done so far where it feels like life depends on the results. But exams aren't the only form of testing that we do. Think about drugs. Uh, They're trying to develop a vaccine for for COVID. I hope they test it really well before they release it on people like me. I want to make sure that it doesn't have side effects and it's got some efficacy. We test engineering designs. We can design them on the computer and all the theory looks right, but until you actually test it in real life, you don't know whether the design is going to work. Uh, I spent some time as an engineer working in testing labs. One of the things we did was set up a, a, a mechanism to open and close a microwave door. So we had pulleys and levers and, 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 uh, and prodding things to open the door, close it again, because we had to open and close it 100,000 times to test that at the end of that, microwaves weren't leaking out of the oven. The testing is actually often a really helpful and good thing, a necessary thing, to know whether theory is actually real whether it's just words and promises and design or whether it will work in practice. It's very easy to say, I love you, isn't it? But what does it mean? Has it got any substance? You don't know till he'll go out in the rain to get the car so you don't get wet. So she goes to the footy with you and pretends to enjoy it. Until there's action, you don't know whether it means anything. Tests are never pleasant but they're very necessary in so many ways and so many times. If you're a Christian, I hope you've realised that God tests you. I think there are two types of tests, both of which make us uncomfortable. One sort of test is when we read and understand the commands of God, the way God wants us to live, but we find ourselves in tension between what God says we should do and what I want to do. God says, forgive as I've forgiven you, but I find forgiving very difficult with some people. He says, tell the truth, but so often I I reckon telling a lie, evading the truth, I'd be better off. Can I trust God and his word and his ways? God says, keep sex for marriage. That puts tension on many of us. There's God's commands, but there's also just difficult life circumstances. I fail an exam and it throws my life into confusion. I want a job and I can't get one. I'm a graduate, but there are no jobs available. I'm left just twiddling my thumbs month after month. Or maybe you get an illness, a chronic illness, physical, mental illness that tests your trust in God. Is God really for me? It doesn't feel like it at the moment and tests our loyalty. Why does God test us? Is it because he's ignorant? He doesn't know what's in our hearts. I doubt it. Is it because he delights in our failure? No. Then why? Well, that's the question that lies behind this passage in Genesis 22. The test of Abram. Or Abraham, sorry. Now, we're told at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1 that God tests Abraham. But Abraham doesn't know it's a test. He just hears a command from God. Take your son, your only son, whom you love and sacrifice him. 
as a burnt offering. Every word must have been like a state in a stake in Abraham's heart. Your your only son, your precious only one, Isaac, the one you've waited so long for, hoped and prayed for for probably about 70 years, finally born when Abraham is 100 years old. His precious only son, the one he loves, the apple of his eye. How could a parent ever do this? How could any parent do it? And how could God demand this of any father, let alone Abraham? Abraham, who has only one son. But there's more to this test than fatherly love. Behind these tests are the promises to Abraham a few chapters before, 25 years before, when God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make from you a great nation. That is, you're going to have kids, you'll have kids, you'll have lots and lots of kids until you become a great nation. I'll give them a land. I'll make them a blessing to the whole world. This is the diagram we've been using just to summarise that. And it's clear in the early chapters of Genesis that Offspring, whoop, uh, that bottom left-hand corner, is actually the key one at this time. For 10 chapters or so now, over 25 years, there hasn't been a kid for Abram and Sarah. They're waiting, they're hoping, God keeps promising, but there's no child. There is no offspring. And all the promises depend on having an offspring, on them having a son to whom the promises will go. Otherwise, there's no nation, there's no land, there's no nothing. And then God says... Now Abram has been, uh, Isaac has been born. Kill Isaac. For Abraham, that must have been incredibly confusing. And has God lost all sense? Has he gone crazy? He, he promises a son. He gives me a son. Finally, when I'm 100 years old, and now he says, go and kill that son. All your promises, God, depend on this son. And now you say, sacrifice him. What is Abram to make of that? It must have been incredibly difficult for him. We're told back in chapter 15 that Abraham believed the promises of God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But how do we know that he really believed? How will we know? How will Abraham know whether that belief has any substance to it or not? Well, he's given the command. What is he going to do? Well, I guess what he could say is, oh, sorry, God, I didn't quite get that. The line dropped out. And pretend he'd never heard anything. Or he could try and delay for 10 years till Isaac grows up and can have a child. And then, okay, God, we can do it now because the promises have got some future. But what do we read? Early the next morning, straight away, daybreak. He's there hustling around, preparing to go and obey God. He packs the donkey, gets a couple of helpers, gets some wood and off they set. And for three days they travel on foot and Abraham doesn't deviate or dally about. The narrator is silent on the torment in Abraham's heart, the heaviness of his footsteps. It leaves it to our imagination to wonder what is going on in his mind and heart. But when they arrive in sight of the destination, he leaves the servants and the donkey behind. And it's just Abraham and Isaac, father and his only beloved son, walking up the hill. The son carrying the wood, the supplies for the burnt offering. The father carrying the knife and the fire, the weapons of sacrifice and execution. And there's awkward silence as they walk until Isaac breaks the silence in verse 7. Father, uh, yes, my son, Uh, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice? This innocent, 
haunting, obvious question to ask. And Abraham's response is evasive. God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Pious, yes. But what is he thinking? Is he just trying to evade the question? And then we reach the place of the sacrifice and the action slows right down to a crawl as the storyteller draws out the suspense. Here's Abraham, 110 years old, collecting rocks and making a pile out of them and getting the wood and placing it on top of the rocks like a boy scout would do it. And then he binds Isaac and suddenly we realise that Isaac is a willing participant in this. He could have easily run away. Once he saw what his dad was doing, and remember his dad's 110 years old, he's very old and frail. He could have just got up there and out of there, but he doesn't. He lets it happen to him. And then it slows right, right down. And he zooms in on the hand of Abraham. He stretches out his hand and he grabs the knife and he's about to plunge it into the neck of Isaac. And suddenly a voice yells out, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham, don't do it. Verse 12, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. At that dramatic moment, at the very last second, God intervenes. And it's clear that Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son. He did not spare his son, but willingly gave him up to God. It's clear that Abraham fears God. His devotion to God even trumps his devotion to his only son. It's clear that Abraham trusts God's promises. Despite the contradictory directions, go and sacrifice your son, he trusts that God will keep his promise somehow. And it's clear that this was a test. Abraham didn't know that before. God never intended Isaac to die. God is not into child sacrifice. Other gods of the time were, but God is not. He prevented it happening. It's just a test, but it's a very extreme test. So extreme that Abraham's trust in God, his loyalty to God is stretched almost to breaking point. Abraham's heart is laid bare. His faith was real. When it said Abraham believed God, he really did believe God. There was substance. They weren't just words on a page. He didn't just trust God when all was going well and it was easy and God was making life terrific. At the hardest possible moment, he trusted God. He obeyed when obedience was heart-wrenching and painful. How did he do it? What was going through his mind? Well, the book of Hebrews helps us to understand it. Commenting on this 1,500 years later, the writer said that when it happened, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. That is what went through Abraham's mind. Isaac is the one God has promised that the promise will go through. He needs to be alive. But God says, kill Isaac. So so what's going on? God must be saying, when you kill him, I'll raise him again. Now, that's not... Uh, unreasonable for Abraham because he's seen God bring life from death already. His wife's body was as good as dead. She was 90 years old, never had a kid, and she finally had a child, a son, Isaac. This idea that God is powerful enough and faithful enough to raise the dead is not a new idea for Abraham, but he has to think it through and reason 
that that's so. And we actually get a hint in the, in the passage itself, in the story, that that's true. Back in verse 5, he says to the servants, we, Isaac and I, will go and worship and then we will come back to you. He knows that he's going to kill Isaac, but we will come back. He has confidence that God will raise Isaac from the dead. We see with clarity it's a test that Abraham passes. But we also see God's provision. Verse 13, in one sense, is a strange verse. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. You see, if it's just a test, the sacrifice is totally unnecessary. It's just pieces of the drama. It's not needed for the test. And yet God thinks it's necessary for Abraham still to sacrifice something. Something has to die. It's necessary that this burnt offering is given, in which an animal is died and its body is barbecued, burnt crisp, burnt whole. Why? Well, throughout the whole Old Testament, this sort of sacrifice is regularly connected with atonement for sin. That something needs to die. The penalty for sin is rightly death for our evil, which would have been true for Abraham. We know he's very imperfect. It would have been true for Isaac. He's been a normal, naughty child, I presume. And God provides the sacrifice. That's unusual too. In every religion in the world, we provide the sacrifice. If we want the gods to be happy with us, the powers that be, we bring something that's precious to us, that is ours, which costs us something. But Here, God provides the sacrifice, the ram caught in the thicket. And with this idea of provision is the idea of substitution. The ram dies instead of Isaac. Isaac's there on the altar, but he's taken off and the ram is put there in his place. And it's very explicit in verse 13, as a burnt offering instead of his son, in place of Isaac. Isaac lives because the ram dies. And then we see God's response to Abraham's obedience, repeating his promises that he'd made to Abraham previously. I will bless you. You'll have a a great nation come from you. I'll give them even the gates of their enemies. They'll take the land. It'll be theirs in security. And now it's more than just a promise. Previously, every time God has said these things to Abraham, it's simply a promise. I will. Abraham, I will. Now God swears an oath. Sorry about the swearing. But an oath is when you, you swear by something. You know, I swear by my mother's grave that I will do this. Why do you say that? Well, firstly, because your mother's grave is more important than you. That's why you can swear by that. And secondly, you're trying to say to the person, I really, really, really mean this. You can take this to the bank. My words to you, my promises. And God swears not by his mother's grave. He swears by the greatest thing there is, which is God himself. He swears by himself that he will do these things. He commits himself unconditionally to do it. But notice the reason in verse 18. Because you have obeyed me. See, when God made these promises earlier, land, offspring, relationship, blessing, they were always completely unconditional. I'm just going to do it. Now God says, I'm going to do this because, Abraham, you've been obedient. It sort of sounds intention a a bit contradictory does that mean Abraham's faith and obedience is necessary well as you read through the bible the answer is yes and no no we see because in many instances when the people of God go completely wrong 
God stands by his promises. The the generation that were brought out of Egypt in the Exodus, what happens to them? They prove as unfaithful and unreliable and unwilling to obey God as you can get. And God says, you won't enter the promised land. Does that mean God's promise that they will enter the promised land just falls flat? No. God says, you won't, but your kids will. My promise to give them the land still holds, even though you've been completely unfaithful. Now, we're not quite sure what would have happened if Abraham had failed this test miserably. That's hypothetical. We, we don't know. But what we do know is that there's a sense in which the answer is yes. Abraham's obedience and faith is necessary. Because at the core of God's blessing of Abraham and his offspring is this relationship. Abraham trusted God and he was justified. God said, you will be my people and I'll be your God. They're bound together by this mutual loyalty. And if there's no loyalty on Abraham's part, there is no relationship. When we say we have faith, obedience shows that it's real. Otherwise, there is no real faith. I can say I trust in God, but if push comes to shove and it's tested and I don't trust God, then there is no faith. Obedience is necessary in that sense. It shows that our faith is real. It showed that Abraham's faith was real. Well, let's zoom out for a minute and see some of the significance for us. It's interesting that as we read this story, I I can't help but put myself in Abraham's shoes and just wonder at what he's going through and the trauma and the, 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 the anxiety and everything about sacrificing his son. But Do you notice that Abraham's focus is different? Where does he finish up? Does he walk around saying, hey, I passed the test, great is me? Now have a look at verse 14. Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And and to this day it said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham's take home is, God provides. What he commands, he provides. God commands a burnt offering. God provides the burnt offering. And as we pick that up, I hope you start to see that this has lots of connections with Jesus. If you know anything about Jesus, one of the things you'll know is that Jesus said all the Old Testament, all that God did for those 2,000 more years, all point to me. That is, there's sort of these dots that join every story, including this one, with Jesus. Now, what I want you to do is think about how this story connects to Jesus. Just talk to the person next to you and see if you can identify any of the dots, any of the lines that join Abraham and Isaac, this story, with Jesus. Now, if you don't know much about Jesus, don't worry. This is not a a sort of a a test where you can fail. Uh, Just listen to the other people around you if you don't know much. I'm sure they'll have something to contribute. So can I just ask you, talk to the person next to you or two people around you, what lines can you see that connect this story with Jesus?
All right, I'll interrupt the conversations. What, what did you see? Just throw in suggestions. It's not a test. All answers welcome. Substitute. Substitute. Yeah, the idea of a substitute, that God substitutes, well, in our case, his own son for us to bear the penalty for our evil. Yeah, that's a very strong idea, isn't it? It's in the passage. It comes through to Jesus in a very remarkable and clear way. Come back to that one. Yep. Uh, Ezra, do you sort of know? You're just... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this idea, this his only son, this one and only beloved son, that, that's a very strong idea. Yep. Some of you might read the third one on the outline. That's not as obvious. We'll come to that in a minute. Any others? God provided the lamb. God provided the lamb. Yes. God provided the substitute. Okay, let's explore those a little bit more. We won't do a lot on this, but... Yeah, it's hard to miss this idea in the passage that it's your son, your only son, the son you love, that is at the, the, the heart of this story. You might remember at Jesus' baptism. That's exactly what God says about Jesus. You are my son whom I love. Um, and it's that son. Abraham didn't spare his own son, nor did God the Father spare his own son. Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. That, that's what Abraham did with Isaac. He gave up his beloved son. Or as it says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, often we're very aware of the agony that Jesus went through on the cross. He died. He was crucified. He was abandoned by his father. But in a sense, this invites us to feel the agony of Abraham in anticipation that 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 fateful knife plunge. And Abraham is sustained by his faith in God who raises the dead. And so we have a window into the agony of the father, God, the father who planned and enacted the sacrifice of his own beloved son, sustained in doing that by what? Not his faith in himself, but by his love for us. That's what sustained him. That's why he went through with it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so Jesus is like the son. He's like Isaac, but even better. But he's also like the ram who replaces Isaac. It's a, it's a complex set of lines between them. The ram, the lamb, dies in Isaac's place so that Isaac can live. And that whole idea permeates the whole Old Testament. The tabernacle and temple and the whole sacrificial system that God gave uh, Israel had this idea of substitution at its heart. An animal dies and is burnt up to atone for human sin so that humans can live and go free. And here, as it's been said, God himself provides the substitute. He sent his own son. So 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin, his son Jesus, to be sin, to take our sin on himself so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a, an exchange in the substitution. Now I'm guessing that many, many people have provided lots of things for you. Your parents, maybe your siblings, an aunt, the government with hex and allowances and all those sort of things. People have provided lots for you. Your friends have too. But I suspect no one has ever provided anything nearly as precious as this, as costly as this. God's provision of a substitute for you 
Because I'm like Isaac. I go free because Jesus died in my place. And there's the idea of place on the mountain of the Lord. Where is it that God directs Abraham to go for this sacrifice? It's the mountains of Moriah. Do you know where they are? Anyone been there? If you've been to Jerusalem, you have. They are the mountains of Moriah. Jerusalem in Palestine, in Judea. And God seemed very particular about the place. If you read this story again, you'll see he keeps directing him to go to a certain place, three days' journey from where he's living. Moriah, the mountain region where the temple was built, where Jesus was crucified and where Jesus was resurrected from the dead. God received his son back from the dead on the third day and Abraham received his son back from the dead on the third day. And Abraham Abraham calls the mountain, the Lord will provide. It's not just the Lord did provide once, that's the place God will continue to provide. And people even start to talk about that place. Everyone knows it's the place where God provides. And he did in the year 30 AD when Christ, the son of God, died for the evil of the world. There are so many dots to join, aren't there? In fact, it's sort of hard to read this story without thinking this can't be just a coincidence, can it? It can't just be an accident that in about the year 2000 BC, 2000 years before Jesus was on, on, the, on the scene, God said, go to Moriah. God said, it's three days journey. God said, I want you to, to make a sacrifice of atonement. God said, it's your beloved son who will be sacrificed. God said, I'll provide a substitute. All those lines just converge on Jesus. It's God, the master planner, planning the signposts that point to Jesus everywhere so that you will see Jesus. So I'll see Jesus and know him and trust him. Which brings us to considering facing our tests. As we think about this, it's worth being aware of the timing of Abraham's test. God doesn't test Abraham like this. Back in chapter 12, when he first received the promises, he doesn't test him in chapter 15, where he reiterates the promise. It's not until after Isaac has been miraculously born. It's not until Abraham has seen and experienced the power and faithfulness of God. It's not until Abraham has the resources to handle this sort of test, to be convinced that God could bring life out of death, that God would provide. But what about our tests? I don't know what tests you've faced so far, what tests you will face. I have friends at the moment who are going through debilitating fatigue with no cure in sight, no end, no hope. I know some who are going through mental health challenges that are just sending them crazy. They they don't know how to cope with life. How do we trust in God under those sort of situations, when our lives are put under the microscope, when our hearts and loyalties are exposed by the tests we go through. I hear regularly of Christians who face death or imprisonment simply for being Christian in many parts of the world. And I wonder how I would go if if that was me, if somebody put a gun to my head and said, Tim, deny Jesus or we'll shoot you. I know some in this country who are facing uh, getting the sack from their job or deregistration because they hold on to God's uh, goodness about gender and abortion and sexuality. My little tests seem trivial in comparison, but they're still real. They're still stressful. What do they need to know? What do I need to know? 
What I need to know is that God has provided. God has provided in the death of Jesus. He provides for my failures in the test because many tests I've got undergone, I have failed. I haven't hung on to Jesus. I haven't trusted his goodness. I, I failed, just like Abraham did many other times. I've kept my mouth shut. I've been ashamed of Jesus. I let my, I've opened my mouth in the wrong way and let my imagination and mouth run wild. And often I feel condemned by that. Well, why resist? Why, why try in the next test? Well, because my failures don't count against me. God has provided. And in Jesus' resurrection... God has given me the promise of my resurrection. So if somebody holds a gun to my head and said, deny Christ or I'll shoot you, boy, that's a test. But I can say, I've got the resources to say, go ahead. Because I know I'll be resurrected. I know that God will provide. He'll raise me to life again. And I'll tell you what, if I can pass that test, I can pass any test, can't I? If, If putting a gun to my head... If God gives me enough, if God provides for me so I can, I can be loyal to him then, I can be loyal to him anywhere, can't I? He's provided what I need and what you need. And it reveals another reason to welcome the tests of God, the difficult situations that test my trust in God and my loyalty to God. So the last passage we'll look at is this one in 1 Peter 1. He's, Peter writes to Christians and said, a little while now, you've, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, tests. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, a greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Well, what's he saying? When my faith is tested, when my loyalty to God is put under the microscope, it demonstrates that my faith is real. I grew up in a Christian family. I became a Christian at about age 13. But I remember at about 16, wondering whether I was just going along with the family, whether it was my faith or just their faith, whether I socialised into it or whether it was genuine. In my second year at uni, I lived in a residential college, 200 students or so, and I was the only Christian. And I found that a very tough year. The lifestyle of college, well, just to give you an illustration, One of the students estimated, with some some research, that more than a third of the students were growing pot in their own rooms in college. Like, they actually had the pot plants there, and they shared it. It it was that sort of college. The promiscuity was just normal, rife. And I remember during that year thinking, I don't know if I can stay Christian. This is just too hard. At the end of the year, I was still Christian, a bit bruised and battered, But Jesus was still my Lord and Saviour. I'm so glad I went through that year because it helped me to see that my faith was real. There was some substance there. Without the test, I would have just gone on unknowing, feeling very fragile. But that year gave me confidence to enter the next year, thinking, yeah, there is something to this. God has held on to me and there's something real going on in my heart. Jesus does mean something to me. And every test is like that. It tests our faith. Not because God doesn't know, because you don't know. And it's a wonderful thing that he does it. Now, we live in a period of history where we're much more fearful about difficulties and challenges than past generations have often felt. We have heightened sensitivity to the feelings of threat and our safety being under threat. Even microaggressions, we sort of want to get uptight about and say they they can't happen. But they're only microaggressions. You know, what would happen if you had a real aggression? We have safe spaces on our universities 
We, we feel like we need to retreat and, and self-protect against any stress or difficulty because it's going to be bad for us. And God says, no, it's not. He tested Abraham. He tests you and he tests me in his love for us so that we can be confident that there's something real. There's something substantial to your faith. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we don't like tests. But thank you for them. Thank you that it's right and helpful. And we ask you in your kindness, you'll help us not just pass the tests that you send, but rejoice in the confidence you give us. In Jesus' name. Amen.